this week on the Back Table Podcast. Every urologist, I'm sure, has dealt with testosterone. And my goal is to convince everybody out there that whether it's testosterone, whether it's peronis, it can be actually really rewarding patient-wise, cognitively, scientifically, and practice-wise. You know, you don't really have to see it as like a burden. And if there's somebody that should be, you know, doing this, it should be us, right? Urologists, men's health, you know, we, we should be the ones that help the patients out with these kinds of options. There's a lot of options out there. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsors. Kaisatrex, an innovative oral testosterone undeconate, is FDA-approved for men with low or no testosterone. Kaisatrex's unique formulation has demonstrated liver safety and favorable safety parameters. Kaisatrex is the first all-catch testosterone product available at select specialty pharmacies and available for in-office dispensing. For more information, go to www.kaisatrex.com. That's www.kyzatrex.com. Now, back to the show. The Jose Silva is your host this week. I'm happy to introduce our guest, Dr. Andrew Son. Dr. Son earned his medical degree at Harvard Medical School, then went on to do residency at Cleveland Clinic, Clickman Urological and Kidney Institute, then pursued a fellowship in andrology and men's health at the University of California, Los Angeles. Currently, he directs the Center for Men's Health at Urology Partners of North Texas in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Andrew, welcome to Backtable. Hey, thanks so much. Great to be here. Looking forward to it. So, Andrew, prior to going into what uh, we're going to talk about testosterone today and testosterone replacement, I want you to the audience know about your practice. Is this your first job? Uh, no, <laughs> it's my second job. You know, I think the statistic is 50% of people end up leaving their first job, and you never think that's going to be you un until it is you. So I was in a smaller group uh, also in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, uh, about five-person group for about a year. But then the opportunity arose to basically join a mega group, I guess, and to be the men's health guy and sort of direct a little men's health center. So had to jump at that opportunity when it arose. Our practice currently, it's uh, I think 29 doctors and 12 APPs. Um, and we have a lot of fellowship trained people. And so we kind of have different centers. So there's like an incontinence center and a cancer center. And for me, it's the men's health center where me and uh, two fabulous APPs that I work with kind of just do all things men's health. And it's great. We have a lot of fun. So definitely, so I mean, I wouldn't say like an academic center, but definitely everybody has their own niche and you're able to specialize in, in what you like. Yeah, it, it's almost like an academic center, even though it's a large community practice. You know, we have so many fellowship trained people and, and people subspecialize. And, and so it essentially works like a, an academic center. You know, we do research as well. And so, yeah, it, it's best of all worlds. <laughs> exactly. I mean, sometimes I, I think, hey, I should go on my own or, or join a small group. But then you fail to reach that niche or, or I'm currently doing a lot of BPH, kidney stones, maybe I had to do a lot of stuff. It's, it's always good to have somebody like that you can refer patients that, that interest you, definitely. Yeah, my partner is definitely 
take advantage of that, much to my you know, joy, right? They just send me all the peronies and, and penile implant patients and, and testosterone guys. I enjoy it. So when you went into this group, that was the idea. It's not like you went, hey, I have the idea, uh, let's build it. So you went in with that mind that you were going to go be the, the men's health guy. Yeah, that, that's kind of what I, you know, did fellowship in. And that was always a, kind of the dream that I wanted to create. Just needed a, a fertile ground to do it. And uh, my group has been amazing. And they, you know, I sort of told them my vision of essentially a men's health center dedicated to men's health conditions. And we can take some of these conditions that, let's be honest, many urologists don't particularly enjoy treating like peronies, like ED, like low T, testicular pain even is like one of my subspecialties. Uh, you can imagine how happy my partners are to let me take care of that. Send me your address. I'll send you my ballplay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but once you once you develop that interest in that niche and you're given the tools to do it, you can really create something that's not only very rewarding professionally, but also brings a lot of you know benefits to the practice as well. So it's great. So Andrew, why men's health is important? So huh, how much time do you have? I mean, the, the the general idea is that men, well, we we just don't take care of ourselves very well. We don't eat well, we don't exercise enough, and we definitely don't go see the doctor when we should have, right? Uh, it's only when things are really, really catastrophic that we do. And so the idea was, okay, well, you know, most urology faces patients, men and women, 50s, 60s, you know, when they get some issues. But what about when they're 20 and 30 and 40? And at that time, that's when they're getting a lot of the chronic conditions, diabetes, hypertension that are going to affect them when they're 50 and 60. But convincing a 25-year-old guy to come to the doctor is very, very difficult. And the thing that appeals to these men, the, the way that you can get them in to the healthcare setting to engage in some of their healthcare is likely through things that they care about, like sexual dysfunction, like male infertility, and these kinds of things. And I see it as, you know, somebody has to be the, the gatekeeper of this kind of disease process. I think that should be us as men's health urologists. And I think you know, when the 35-year-old guy comes in and he has ED, you know, you can, when's the last time you went to the doctor? And, and so in, in this age group, 20s, 30s, 40s, men care about their sexual health. And so this is a, a perfect way to get guys to understand what's going on with their health, because many of the things that are going to be the cause of their heart disease when they're 50, it's also the cause of ED, right? Whether it's diabetes, high blood pressure, whatnot. So yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's a fun field. It's definitely growing, especially as, you know, the, the burden of chronic illness kind of continues to rise. And, and so we enjoy it. Plus it's fun. No, exactly. Definitely. And, and, and like you mentioned, I mean, we need to take care of ourselves since we start. I mean, at 25, usually when you see the patient 40, 50, then probably it's, it's too late. So definitely that, that being proactive is good for all of us. You mentioned already ED, Peronis. How much of your practice is testosterone replacement? A fair chunk because many of these other diagnoses Peroni's disease, erectile dysfunction, right? We screen all of these men for low T because many of them have it. Now, unfortunately, many men with ED think that testosterone is the cure for their erectile dysfunction, which we all know it's not, but it certainly plays a role. You know, there's some evidence that hypogonadal men may have worse outcomes from Peroni's disease as well. It definitely is a component. And so we, we screen all the men for it. And then, of course, there's many guys that come in because they've heard X, Y, and Z about testosterone and they may be exhibiting some of the symptoms. And so, yeah, it's a fair chunk, maybe 40% even. And when you see that patient, let's say that classic patient that do come with uh, decreased libido, just loss of focus, tired all the time, do you go straight into options? Do you go talk about what, what to expect? I mean, for example, a guy that has two jobs, 
wakes up at five in the morning and expects to have the same energy at 1 a.m. I mean, so, so expectations always are, are, are very important. But what goes through that initial encounter with the patient? Yeah, uh, I totally agree. And, and I sort of tell the guys, look, like you might have some of these symptoms. The difficult thing with testosterone is that the symptoms of low T can have so many explanations, right? You're tired, uh, your libido is less, you know, you don't feel like you're gaining as much in the gym. That could be low testosterone. That could be a hundred other things. And the only thing we can do is let's check the numbers. And if the numbers and the symptoms go together, then we might have some to treat. But if your numbers are totally fine, you know, 650 testosterone or something like that, then we might have to think about other things. I also, of course, always start most of my discussions with lifestyle management, right? Sleeping, eating well, you know, exercise, all this kind of stuff. But for sure, you know, many of these men exhibit the symptoms. And so we, we check their labs and we sort of go from there. And what options do you offer the patient? Yeah. So the way that I talk to the guys, there's definitely several different varieties of these low testosterone guys, right? All the way from the 32-year-old or 28-year-old guy that's heard too much stuff from his buddies at the gym to the 75-year-old guy who's very, very hypogonadal. First, we talk about, okay, these might be, you know, your, the symptoms of low testosterone. Let's check labs. Sometimes they come in and they've already had a lab checked, like a total testosterone, but usually that's all that's been checked. And I tell them, I don't just need to know your total testosterone, right? We want to check where that's coming from. Is it something in the brain? Is it something in the testicles? Is it production? What's your estradiol? What's your free testosterone? And we kind of go into all of that because there's a whole slew of labs, FSH, LH, right, that we, that we check. So for that initial patient, you send everything, FSH, LH, everything? So I send everything because the reality is, is that, yes, you could just check a total testosterone and then if it's low, you check other things. But in the real world, the patients don't want to come back four different times to get labs on labs on labs. They just want the answer. And so, yeah, I check everything. So then, you know, then we basically divide testosterone options into internal or endogenous boosting agents versus exogenous replacement agents, right? And most patients, when they hear of testosterone, they think that what they're doing by taking testosterone is boosting their internal testosterone. But I tell them, no, you are replacing your testosterone with most of the conventional versions that they've heard of, right? Injections and whatnot. Uh, as far as endogenous production, you know, Clomid, Clomiphene, which is a, a serum that kind of, it increases your pituitary production of FSH and LH, which increases endogenous testosterone production from the testes. Uh, you can use anastrozole, which is an aromatase inhibitor that blocks the conversion of testosterone to estradiol. You can use direct testicular stimulatory agents such as HCG, which essentially mimics LH, but is an injection. These agents are kind of the general things that we use for that internal production. They tend to have varying results, right? Especially the most common one that's used is clomiphene. Uh, that can be given 25 milligrams every other day, 50 milligrams every other day. There's been some difficulty in acquiring clomiphene lately. There was a, the, the generic manufacturer of clomid or clomiphene, I should say, stopped making it. You can basically now either get name brand Clomid or compounded Clomid. The name brand is super expensive. It is. The manufacturer, Cossette Pharmaceuticals, has partnered with GoodRx to offer like a discount. So the current price, if you look it up in GoodRx, at least for my area, is $135 for 30 pills, which if you're taking 25 milligram every other day, is actually not that bad, right? Because then that's almost a four-month supply. So it's at least within the realm of possibility. Anastrozole, very cheap. Many men use it. Many men 
overuse it. I think one of the the big things that we need to dispel in in the general population is that a lot of men have this idea that like testosterone is good and therefore estrogen is bad. Yeah, and they want as little estrogen as possible, but we have to tell them no, you know, estrogen is critical for libido, for bone density, for a lot of different things. Especially like you mentioned the bone density, very very important for the older population. Very important. We sometimes see guys that come in and they've been on sort of a testosterone and an estrazole regimen for many years and their estrogens are completely suppressed and you know we got to take them off of that, which can take some convincing, but it's definitely very important. HCG, essentially I tell patients HCG is like LH in a bottle, but it has to be injected and it can be very difficult to get, right? It used to be able to be compounded, then not, then only a few select places kind of have the ability to compound it. But many of us get name brand Pregnol, which can be somewhat cost prohibitive for many patients. But that's kind of the the endogenous route. Do you use any of those in your practice? I mean, I don't use uh, HCG, but patients that still want to keep fertility, they're, they're actively trying to have kids, but they have the symptoms of low libido. Yeah, yeah I use Clomid. Yeah, I think that's the, the biggest thing with endogenous is that it preserves testicular size, it preserves testicular function, and it preserves fertility. Um, which, you know, it, it generally tends to be what I offer to the younger guys, especially if they have low FSH and LH levels, right? Because that kind of tells you that the source of their hypogonadism is probably, you know, stress and lack of sleep and, and a variety of these factors. And you have sort of room to grow if you boost their FSH and LH. If they come in and their FSH and LH is already 25, then you're probably not going to get very far with Clomid. Um, because their their brain is already sending a very strong signal to the testicles, and the testicles may already be maxed out, so to speak. When do you use this uh, endogenous? Do you let the patient decide, or or you there's a specific patient you say, okay, we're not gonna do exogenous, we're gonna do it endogenous. You know, ultimately, I leave it up to them, but I kind of present to them the two options, and and I would say ninety percent of the guys come in wanting injections or some kind of direct testosterone placement because they've seen it online or that's what their buddy's taking. But the same 90% of those men do not realize that that is replacing their own internal testosterone and therefore mostly shutting down their pituitary axis. And once they learn that fact, that they're essentially shutting their own factory down, then many of them, especially the younger ones, especially especially ones that still want to have children, you know, are like, well, can you do anything to boost it? And that's when we start talking about these options. And there's a lot of factors that go into my decision-making one of the things that I sort of tell patients is a little bit of it depends on, you know, what I say, how much you have to lose, right? A guy that's starting at a testosterone of 299, let's just use the one under the official cutoff, he has 299 to lose if he takes exogenous testosterone, but maybe he can boost that up. But a guy whose basal testosterone is 50, it probably doesn't have much to lose. And so if you give him exogenous testosterone, perhaps you're you're losing less, I guess. And that seems to resonate with people when they're thinking about it. Definitely men who still want fertility. There's a lot of creative ways to use HCG. You can combine HCG with testosterone to preserve testicular size and function. You can use it in recovery protocols to get people to make sperm again after they've been on testosterone for long periods of time. One of the things that's unfortunate about Clomid is this discrepancy between the numerical treatment outcome and the symptomatic benefit. And I don't think anybody has really ever come up with an amazing explanation for this, but you might take a guy who's starting off low and you give him Clomid and he gets to 750 and he just says, doc, I still don't feel much better. 
And that's maybe 30%, 40% of people. And if they take exogenous testosterone and they get to the same treatment number, they'll generally just feel a lot better. And, uh, and so sometimes that can happen too. That, that's definitely true. So in terms of exogenous treatments, what is out there? Well, there's a long discussion. There are more ways of doing this than just about anything, except maybe like how to open up a prostate, you know? <laughs> the way that I talk to patients is I tell them there's essentially four things to consider. There's cost, of course. There's a uh, side effect profile. And then all the versions of testosterone are some sort of trade-off between how frequent you have to do it and how invasive it is, right? The most invasive is the least frequent, that's pellets. And the least invasive, you know, say orals, right, is twice a day. And so we kind of go down the line that way. And each of these have some different considerations to think about. I guess we'll start classically. The vast majority of people still take injections, right? Injections either of testosterone cypionate or testosterone enanthate. That is definitely the most popular. It's very cheap. It's generic. You know, you can get it for 20, 30 bucks a month, either compounded or even from CVS with a good RX coupon. Lots of varieties of protocols that people inject anywhere from 400 milligrams once a month, which makes no biological sense, to the most common version that I see from most primary cares, which is 200 milligrams every two weeks, which still doesn't make a lot of biological sense because most of the testosterone is gone after about 10 days. Most commonly for us, we'd use testosterone cypionate, weekly injections. Most of my patients, we start at 100 milligrams per week. There's a, you know, IM versus sub-Q. So when testosterone was first developed, it was told to be injected IM. But if you look at sub-Q administration, the pharmacokinetics are almost identical. There might be slight differences, but in my experience, not big enough to really matter. Plus, you really wonder when people are taught to inject IM, how many of them are really getting it all the way into the muscle and how many just end up sub-Q anyway. But patients definitely find sub-Q injections much easier to do. So we tell most of our patients, sub-Q, you know, pinch a little bit of belly fat. You know, most of us have a little bit and just inject it there. The weekly injection tends to be easiest for people to remember. Sometimes people like to split those doses into twice a week, and I think that's perfectly fine and actually probably has an even lower incidence of side effects. Enanthate versus cypionate, you know, cypionate's more commonly available. There may be a little bit less uh, lower extremity edema and fluid retention with enanthate. So if you have an elderly patient with, with some fluid retention or some heart issues, you know, that kind of thing, you might preferentially go towards enanthate. But both of them are, you know, we mostly tell our patients sub-Q mostly once a week, starting at half a milliliter or 100 milligram and then going up or down from there. Some of the issues with any form of sort of depot type shot is that you're going to get a very high peak in the beginning and it's going to then taper off at the end. Part of why we don't like the every two week administration, because usually they report that on day 12 or 13 or 14, they feel pretty bad again, you know. And one of the most common and annoying side effects of testosterone replacement is the erythrocytosis or polycythemia that occurs, which tends to be associated with the peak dose. And so if you give a huge dose, like 400 milligrams once a month, <laughs> you'll get huge peaks and you'll get a lot of erythrocytosis. Whereas if you give 50 milligrams twice a week, that rate will be significantly better. So those are definitely some of the considerations. Obviously, a lot of patients don't like needles and injections. They can be a little painful and patients can sometimes have difficulty remembering exactly how much they were supposed to inject, right? There's definitely, I'm sure we've all experienced it, where you told them 0.5 milliliters and they injected 5 milliliters or something like that. So that's most common. You mentioned the, the 200 versus the 100. When I started 
doing testosterone uh, with the patients I was doing the two weeks so that patients didn't have to inject themselves only twice a month. But definitely when I started having those patients with erythrocytosis that I wanted to decrease or the patient, like you mentioned, that, okay, by the 10th day, they already want more, then it was harder to go back to the 0.5 ml because they're already used to that high peak and the rush. So definitely a couple of years ago, everybody starts in 100 and, and we go from there. Yeah, I think from a clinical practice standpoint, always much easier to start low and go up with testosterone than to start high and try to convince the patients to take less. That That is an uphill battle. <laughs> so right. so for patients that have needle phobia, I mean, they they, they, they say, there's no way I'm going to inject myself. What are, what are the options? Yeah, so uh, a lot of interesting, cool, fancy options uh, for those patients, which is a lot of people. So we'll talk about Zyosted. Zyosted is a testosterone enanthate weekly EpiPen style auto injector. Very clever design. It's just testosterone and enthate, but it's in a spring loaded EpiPen, 27 gauge needle, virtually painless, subcutaneous. And they basically inject that once a week. Uh, it comes in a 50, a 75, and a 100 milligram. So if they're taking more than 100 milligrams a week, it's hard to use Zyas because you can't really use a higher dose than that, right? As with most testosterone things, insurance is always an issue. Uh, we'll talk more about that later, I'm sure. But uh, that is, a, that is an, a nice option from a patient administration standpoint. Even more like sort of less invasive than that would be something like the gels, which were popular for a long time, uh, still popular amongst many primary care doctors and endocrinologists perhaps. Most of us men's health urologists prescribe very little gels. I am not a big fan of the gels because my patients are generally not big fans of the gels. Absorption can vary drastically. 20% of men basically don't even absorb it. It's hard to dose titrate because, you know, how do you really tell a patient, go to two and a half pumps? Yeah, that's not really a thing, right? Transfers risk is real. Uh, skin irritation is significant. The one thing that is nice about it is that it does mimic the natural circadian rhythm of testosterone, which is supposed to be secreted every day and not sort of constantly on board. And the risk of erythrocytosis and, you know, that kind of stuff is definitely less in gels than in injections. You mentioned the gels, but definitely, uh, like you mentioned, let's say the patient has two pumps, once more, three pumps, it, it becomes a mess. How much really are they, is it getting absorbed? So who knows, right? There's, there's diminishing returns. The pharmacokinetics are going to vary between patient to patient. It's very uncontrolled. But hey, it was an attractive option that didn't require a needle. And that's what we had for a long time. So we covered injections, we covered uh, gels, uh, Zyosted. On the other end of sort of the invasiveness and frequency scenario is pellets, whether it's the Testapel or many versions of compounded pellets made by different compounding pharmacies. You know, this is a very relatively quick office procedure. You make a little incision usually in the buttocks and kind of put these slow eluding pellets in. You only have to do this procedure every three to four months or so, sometimes longer depending on their absorption. And it definitely gives them a steady sort of hands-free version of testosterone, but in an extremely non-physiologic way, I guess you could argue, right? Because you're going to get a massive whopping dose in the beginning, which basically slowly tapers off over time. And that is very nice for many patients. Uh, a lot of patients just don't want to do something all the time. And, you know, that, that is a sort of set it and forget it way. But, you know, because you're getting such a big dose uh, up front, there can definitely be a high risk of, you know, polycythemia, erythrocytosis, and other side effects and whatnot. Plus, once the pellets are in, you can't really, like, 
take them out <laughs> and you can't titrate them that carefully. You have to do it every three to four months. And so, you know, that, that can be challenging, but certain patients really enjoy that because they just don't want to deal with it at home. And I think that's definitely still an attractive option. I, I don't know if it happens the same to you, but definitely the patients that I see in the office with uh, pellets, most of the time were not administered by urologists. Correct. I, I would agree with that statement. And most of the time it's not official testapel. It's the vast majority of this now is compounded pellets at uh, independent hormone clinics. Let's put it that way. And the problem with that, just like you mentioned before, I mean, now the patient is, before they had a, a, a testosterone in 400, they got pellets. Now, six months after, they're, they're testosterone in 100. And now they're, they're in a bad position now. Agreed. They definitely have a the biggest swing between like immediately after the insertion and before their next one. And these can be significant symptomatic and, and you know, lifestyle swings in different directions. So sometimes that just means they have to do it more often. And then over time, many of these patients can form scar tissue tracks in, in the areas. There's only so much real estate. You know, the, the trocar is not that small, really, especially if you're doing males because you have quite a number of testosterone pellets usually that you have to place. Um, and so sometimes people do it for a while and, and it's, it's, an, it's an option. And we definitely offer that at our clinic as well because there will be patients that just kind of want to come in and it, it is convenient because ultimately they have to come in and do labs anyway, either every three or every six months. So they're like, well, that doesn't mean I have to do anything else. So yeah, that's that. On the other side, so now to the uh, least invasive options, you have Natesto and then the new oral testosterones. Natesto is a intranasal jelly. Uh, a lot of people think it's a nasal spray. It's not. It's, it's like a castor oil oil <laughs> that's placed in the nose three times a day. Some interesting things about Natesto is that the peak of testosterone is reached very quickly, like less than an hour, and then it fades away very quickly. Uh, that's part of why you have to do it three times a day, but you definitely get the, the fastest sort of absorption. And the most interesting thing about Natesto is that the Natesto data shows that the FSH and LH levels do not get completely suppressed, right? Compared to most versions of testosterone, like injectable cypionate, where over time, your FSH and LH will essentially go to zero, which means your internal production is shut down. Uh, Natesto seems to preserve pituitary secretion, and therefore it preserves fertility. The numbers still go down, but just not to zero. And so for patients that are looking for a testosterone replacement option, but still want to preserve their fertility, it is an option. Although to be fair, if patients are actively still trying to have a kid, we usually will give them Clomid or something like that instead. <laughs> Things with Nintesto. So the fertility aspect is very interesting. We think that it's because of the short on-off that that's the reason why they still preserve their spermatogenesis because the pituitary essentially gets a break. It gets a period of time where the signal is still on. And that's enough time for the preservation of the HPG axis to be maintained. Um, so that's really cool. I'll tell you an anecdote. A patient taught me this. So he was a young guy, you know, testosterone like 400 or so, uh, wanted some extra energy and whatnot. So we said, okay, let's try some Clomid. And he takes the Clomid and his testosterone is like 650 and he feels pretty good. But then he got Natesto and he says, doc, I take the Natesto every morning before I work out once a day not three times a day. I don't need it three times a day, but I take it almost as like a pre-workout boost because within 30 minutes, boom, the testosterone goes up, feel great, get my workout in. And then I'm not worried that it's suppressing because I'm only doing it for a short amount of time. And I'm like, 
that's actually genius in some ways. <laughs> very off-label, but very interesting. And actually, I have several guys now that kind of do that regimen. Many of these younger guys will take Natesto before sex or before uh, athletic activity, and it's an interesting use of it. You need to ask to see what they do during the day, the rest of the day. Because, I mean, I don't think as a surgeon we, we can do that and then just be without any energy during the day. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> and so then, you know, the, the newest and in many ways most interesting testosterones are now the oral testosterones. In a lot of ways, I mean, you know, you think about all the versions that I've mentioned, they all have some kind of drawback, right? Whether it's a side effect drawback, we haven't discussed cost or access, which is a huge issue that every patient and every urologist has, you know, knocked their head into a wall over <laughs> prior authorizations and whatnot. But, you know, what do we really want? We want something that the patients can take at home that's easy, that's not uh, got a lot of side effects, and that gets good levels, and that is safe, right? And I think, you know, oral testosterone has a long history. Uh, originally, there was methyl testosterone, which was metabolized through the liver and had a lot of liver issues. So for a long time, we didn't have orals. That's when the gels kind of proliferated and injections. Now we actually have three different orals, uh, Jitenzo, Talando, and Kaisatrex. They're all the same drug, testosterone undecanoate, there's slight differences between them, which we'll kind of talk about. But the interesting thing about these new oral testosterones is that because of the undecanoate ester, they're not metabolized through the liver. They're actually absorbed via the lymphatic system. So they don't pass through the liver and therefore don't have a lot of the liver toxicity that we used to see. It's sort of directly absorbed and the peak usually hits within about two to four hours or so, but it's still, you know, excreted faster than say a depot injection. And that's why it's a twice a day dose. Most of them are recommended to take in the morning and in the evening. Sometimes I will actually tell the patients to take it in the morning and in the early afternoon to get maximum testosterone levels during the daytime when they're most likely to kind of require or want that energy because maybe it's not as necessary in the evenings. When Jitenzo first came out, that was the first one to market. The biggest issue was just access. You know, the, the insurance companies placed this as a third line thing. So you had to fail the gels and fail the injections, and then maybe you could get your Tenzo. But with every other medical problem in the world, the first line therapy is usually a pill, right? The second line therapy is usually an injection, and then the third line is like some kind of surgery. So it, it didn't make a lot of real world sense to place the pill as a third line option. It was just very difficult to get. But the data was good. There's interesting data as well on SHBG. So kind of go into a little tangent here. So all of our guidelines and most of what we treat is based on total testosterone numbers, right? The guideline number says 300. Now, real world, like does a guy with a testosterone of 302 probably, you know, could benefit from some treatment? Yes, but, but 300, but that's a total testosterone. And that does not take into account the extreme variability in patients' SHBG, sex hormone binding globulin levels, or uh, their androgen receptors, which we don't really have an assay for. And so the more bioavailable version of testosterone, the one that's more correlated with symptoms, even though it's not what our guidelines are written on, is the free testosterone. And in general, the more SHBG you have, the more binding globulin, right, binds to the testosterone, that testosterone is not available, and therefore the, the free testosterone goes down. But we don't really have a great way of necessarily reducing SHBG, so Mostly, we just say, okay, give him more testosterone, get that total number up, and therefore the free will also rise and we'll hope to get the effect. What was really interesting about some of the oral testosterone undecanoid data is that it seems to actually lower the SHBG levels. 
therefore proportionally increasing the free testosterone levels more than injections or gels and whatnot. And given that the actual symptomatic benefit of testosterone seems to be coming from the increase in free testosterone, that's actually really revolutionary and, and attractive, that you can actually lower their SHBG levels and increase their free testosterone. Jatenzo, it comes in a variety of doses. The numbers are a little challenging to remember. I think it starts at 237. There's like a 198, you know, mostly twice a day. It's a 100 something and a 200 something. Yeah, yeah. That's a little challenging to remember. Talando has one dose, 225. You can't really increase or decrease it. It's just that one dose. Kaisadrex, the numbers are a little easier to remember. It's just 100, 150, and 200 milligram tablets, but you take two, so it's 200, 300, 400, right? That I can remember. I will tell you anecdotally in my patients that I've treated with oral testosterone, um, and I mostly use Kaisatrex because it's much more easily obtainable, and we'll talk about that. I have been checking their free and totals and their SHBGs, and I have also seen this you know, significant decline in SHBG and proportionally greater increase in free testosterone. And the symptomatic outcomes have been really, really nice. Patients, you know, they feel great. And so that's been really interesting. So let's talk about what you're doing right now or have you started doing more of the oral testosterone in your practice? A lot more. So I, I would admit when it was just Jatenzo and Talando, I, like probably most urologists, maybe tried to write for it once or twice and it got stuck in a prior authorization somewhere and then we kind of gave up, right? <laughs> so what changed? So in terms of Kaisatrex, uh, so what's the difference? So Kaisatrex, the difference is, is the distribution model because it's not available through CVS, Walgreens, conventional insurance. It's purely a cash product, right? And so it's just a cash pay. It's the only way you can get it. Now, as a physician, obviously there are avenues in terms of your practice, in-office dispensing, you know, pharmacy, specialty pharmacy, these kinds of things. But for the patients, it's basically, you just take the insurance out of it because the, the issue with oral testosterone in its Jatenzo and Talando formulation was never the drug. It's the access, right? And, uh, and if you can remove that barrier and just offer it as a cash product, then it's much more accessible to patients. And the truth is, is that for good or bad, insurance and testosterone just really don't go together. <laughs> you know, so much of the testosterone now is being done in the community and it's mostly done through cash pay, right? Honestly, even testosterone cypionate, the most of the way that I prescribe it is I tell them to use a good RX coupon because it's probably cheaper than their insurance anyway. And I don't have the staff or the patients, honestly, to fill out prior authorizations for that forever, especially when it's $10 a month cash pay, right? And that's a very important, you mentioned the staff, definitely the, the burden that the staff gets just filling papers, getting denials. It, it just takes away from what they're intended to do. And they're bringing patients to the office and getting that patient in and, and, and working that patient and, and doing stuff that will help you really not help the insurance. Absolutely. And I thought, you know, this would be a bigger issue, but the patients understand it too, because they've all also dealt with, you know, I'm waiting for the prescription. The pharmacy says it's not approved. And then, you know, it's been a year and now, wait, I have to come off the testosterone and then do two more low normal morning labs just to be able to prove that I still have low T, even though there's no biological reason why I should have changed at all. You know, it's, it's, it's definitely a big burden. And because Kaisatrex is available as a cash product, I have started to prescribe it a lot more. And I prescribe it as a first line drug because I think that that is where orals sort of in general belong, right? Most people, when offered an option for most issues, their first thought is, can I take a pill for that? And we didn't have a pill or an inaccessible pill, so we had to tell them, well, you have a gel or an injection. 
But now the first line option in my mind should be a pill because it's easy. Uh, the safety profile is also outstanding. So let's talk about that for a second. So, you know, we talked about injections, polycythemia, erythrocytosis, you know, these kinds of issues. The oral testosterone undeck and OA data, for example, in the Kaisertrex clinical trial, the percentage of uh, erythrocytosis was like zero, like literally zero, which is a huge burden alleviated from my mind and the patient's mind. And honestly, from their schedule, because we definitely have these guys, right? They're donating every three months and we're constantly keeping an eye on the, on the hematocrit and stuff. Um, but to not have to do that, it's a huge time saving for everybody. And it takes a sort of mental burden off of all of us, right? Do you still order the lab just in case? Oh yeah. I still order the labs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My general protocol is if I'm, if I'm changing something, I'm going to check it in three months. And if I haven't changed anything and you've been pretty static, it'll be six months basically for everybody. I still order the labs. I'm still always checking their testosterone, their free, their estradiol, their hematocrit, their PSA. Um, the monitoring is the same, but I just haven't seen that kind of like hematocrit issue that, you know, we normally get so often. The one thing is, uh, you know, I was talking about uh, how to take it. Oral testosterone does have to be taken with a meal. The original testosterone, like Jotenzo, has to be taken with a fatty meal. One of the other unique things about Kaisatrex is that it, it's formulated with a phytosterol excipient that basically helps its absorption in the lymphatic system. And so you still need to take it with a meal, but it does not have to be like a particularly fatty meal. So you just have to take it with any meal because this phytosterol excipient helps the absorption through the lymphatic system. It makes it a little bit easier for people. So I guess based on, on that patient of yours that you had that, that took the Natestofor as a booster, you can do the, the Natestofor first, then after workout, eat something and get the 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 Kaisertrex maybe 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 a little Clomid a yeah. little Intesto a little Kaisertrex <laughs> I didn't tell him to do that of course uh, actually that brings up a good point which is that you know one of the most interesting things like I said about Intesto is that it's you know quick on quick off but uh, the oral testosterones seem to have that same effect right that's why you have to take it twice a day so I have also been tracking there's no data for this so just this is my own personal data but in looking at those patients, when I check their FSH and LH levels after being on therapy, they definitely go down, but they do not seem to go to zero either, which of course piques all sort of interest in terms of, is this also, you know, test despairing, you could say, is it, is it preserving fertility? I think these are interesting questions that hopefully we'll get some answers to, but uh, that is part of my idea of like a, of a better testosterone, right? You would love to be able to get a testosterone that gets the same symptomatic benefits as testosterone replacement which Clomid sometimes does not, but without the complete endogenous suppression and the side effects that the patient can also take at home. And so I think it's, it's very revolutionary. And Andrew, for that patient that goes to your office expecting that the insurance covers everything, how do you talk to that patient and, and tell them, hey, we can waste our time dealing with insurance or we can do this? How is that talk? Yeah, that's kind of how I say it. I tell them, look, testosterone and insurance do not mix. Your insurance company is going to make us jump through 20 hoops. You know, if there's one thing that urologists and patients can always agree on, or you know, it's our mutual disdain for insurance companies. And, uh, you know, I tell them, you, you got to do these two morning labs, probably you have to fail like two things. And even still, you might have to continuously redo this authorization every year. And, and most patients kind of understand that. I think people are understanding that some of this stuff is just in the realm of cash pay. And, you know, it's not that expensive. So I also tell patients, if you want generic injections, you know, 
old mainstay, you'll drop the medication, you do, do the needle, you do it yourself. You're looking at like maybe 30, 40 bucks a month, right? That, that is not bad. A dollar a day for your testosterone. If you want a fancy version of testosterone, whether that's a Zyosted, whether that's an Atesto, whether that's an oral, or whether that's cash pay pellets, you're looking at about 150 to 175 bucks a month, which seems like a lot more than the injections, but it's, it's a Starbucks a day, but it's giving you a lot more energy and health benefits than that Starbucks every day is. And most people, I think I was a little bit surprised at how little resistance there was to that. And I think we all get it. And, and sometimes I just level with the patients. And I tell them, I don't have enough staff or time in the day. I would need to hire three people to sit in a room just filling out this paperwork. And you'll have to wait two extra months just to try and get this medication. It's just not worth our time. We want you to get on treatment and we want you to get the you know, symptomatic benefits. And we want to know that that's going to happen. And they're like, yeah, sure, let's do it. You know, it's actually... It works out pretty well. Excellent. I think we have covered a lot of stuff uh, regarding testosterone. In terms of how can you make it profitable as a urologist? Because sometimes, I mean, I'm sure your partners were, were happy when you, they started sending your testosterone patient to you. Because sometimes those testosterone patients, I mean, it, it takes a while to talk to them. And we as surgeons, we're trying to get people in the OR. So how does a urologist make money out of this? Yeah. There's definitely a lot of pieces to that. And I think having like a sort of dedicated men's health center is definitely advantageous because we deal with it all the time so that our partners don't have to deal with it. And because we deal with it so much, our efficiency and our sort of talk track, most of what I, I just explained about all the different testosterones, like I basically have it written down. And when the patients are you know coming in, they just sort of get this primer. It's like, here are all the options. Here's the pluses and minuses. It's a much quicker conversation. Um, that way. A few things, right? The dedicated center is really nice to be able to centralize that. I cannot overstate enough the importance of having APPs uh, in the men's health space in general, but especially testosterone. Most of this long-term follow-up is a great, you know, thing to have APPs help out with. And so I have two, I, they don't really work for me. I, I work for them because I, I just talk to the patients and hopefully do surgery, right? They're really doing all this. In fact, my APPs do my duplex ultrasounds, my Zyaflex, my Trimix, my testosterone management, it really helps alleviate the burden so that I can concentrate on surgery. So APPs are huge. And then it's about how do you actually make it you know, a, a, a meaningful part of your practice from a financial standpoint. And in that realm, we want, I think, to take a little bit of a lesson from the hormone clinics, right? A lot of these places have definitely figured out a, a business model. I'm not saying that it's necessarily the, the right business model, but many versions of testosterone can be utilized in that fashion. So for example, Kaisatrex, like we talked about, oral testosterone, it, since it's not available through CVS, you can get the product to a patient either through in-office dispensing. And when you, you know, EuroGPO Specialty Networks has, you know, contracts and agreements with uh, some of these companies and you can purchase the medication and do in-office dispensing, you can utilize a pharmacy if you have the Many large group practices, like our practice, we have our own pharmacy that helps us work with these kinds of medications, oncolytics, you know, a lot of things. Uh, or you can use specialty pharmacy. In that sense, at least you are sort of unburdening yourself from a lot of the paperwork, which in and of itself is actually significant revenue saving, right? Uh, there's Aved. We didn't talk about Aved. That is a long-acting testosterone undecanoid depot injection. It works for about 10 weeks. It occupies a bit of an interesting space between in pellets and, uh, and injections, but that is something that's also available through EuroGPO and can be administered out of the office. 
and there are, there are sort of programs to help uh, offices with that. You can also, you know, dispense testosterone yourself if you have the the means to do that. I think the other thing to to make people aware of is that yes, if you just take testosterone for what it is, it it definitely for many urologists it seems like a burden, but if you can unburden yourself from many of those insurance hassles, that's like 90% of it. The realization that the low T patient almost always has other relevant urologic diagnoses to treat, right? ED, BPH, PSA issues, prostate cancer. I mean, you're screening all these guys for PSA. And, you know, if you get them into your practice, simultaneously, you're helping these guys out a lot. You're giving them a much better quality of life. You're doing it in a safe and responsible way, checking the labs and being on top of things medically. But they're also in your practice. And eventually, when you have other things that come up, that's what we as urologists are equipped to do. And, you know, they may not be getting that from like the sort of pure hormone clinic situation. So Andrew, so you mentioned, I mean, a lot of things, uh, how to be successful. If there's any specific that you want to add in terms of uh, how to successfully execute the men's health program? I think it definitely takes somebody with passion. And not every urologist has that passion. And that's okay, because a lot of us do. And if, if you have that person and you give them the means to execute on that vision, it can be a huge boon for any urology practice. You're going to take care of more patients. You're going to improve patients' quality of life. You know, we've spent most of our time talking about testosterone, but obviously in the men's health clinic, we also do a lot of post-prostatectomy rehab and quality of life and erectile dysfunction and sexual dysfunction. And, you know, these are issues that patients definitely have. These are issues that young men care about and are ways to engage them in, the, in, in healthcare to hopefully better their outcomes in the future. And they can be, you know, good ancillary streams for any practice if you develop a champion in that space. And I can't state again enough, APPs are a huge part of it. <laughs> so. And Andrew, you mentioned that, for example, Kaxotrax is not on CVS and you cannot get it in a regular uh, pharmacies. How do you get the access? How, how can you get it? A lot of different ways. Um, so for our practice, we have a pharmacy. And so I, I basically have it in my pharmacy. It's really convenient because I can see a patient, I can talk to them and say, okay, here are the options, you know, what version of testosterone do you want to do? Okay, you want to start the pill? Great. Walk down the hall, pick it up, go home today, take the pill tomorrow morning. I mean, you can't do that with any version of testosterone, right? And that makes our practice so much easier, my life so much easier. And one thing I want to mention for follow-up, I think telemedicine has been really crucial the initial low T consult to explain all these options to really do a good job, you know, going through all that, it does take a while. Low T follow-ups do not take that much time. Uh, and so my first half hour of my clinic is just stacked telemedicine consults, which are mostly the three-month or six-month follow-ups. And once I have them on a stable kind of pathway, then, you know, my PAs, we kind of share that telemedicine group of patients when we're doing testosterone follow-ups. And you know, that you can do six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 patients when it's just a testosterone follow-up in a pretty quick amount of time. So that, that's that been a huge thing. I definitely think telemedicine should be chunked into a block, right? I do it at the end of the day. Yeah, at the beginning of the day or at the end of the day, for sure. In terms of access, so pharmacy is one option. In-office dispensing is another option. You know, some states don't allow it, but most states do. Many uh, urology practices already do this with oncolytic drugs and whatnot, um, you know, the prostate cancer medications. And so it's a relatively straightforward thing to set up for in-office dispensing. And then the third option is that there are some specialty pharmacies that, you know, um, 
Marius Pharmaceuticals, the company that makes Kaisatrex, is partnered with, you can send the prescription to them and they can basically send it to the patient. So a variety of different options, all of which significantly increase the access to care for the patients and decrease, you know, my paperwork burden, which is, which is great. Exactly. So Andrew, anything else you want to add? I, I think we covered a lot. Uh, I think you were very on point and you explained everything very, very well. So anything else? No, I think, uh, you know, every urologist I'm sure has dealt with testosterone. And my goal is to convince everybody out there that men's health stuff, whether it's testosterone, whether it's peronis, it can be actually really rewarding patient-wise, cognitively, scientifically, and practice-wise. You know, you don't really have to see it as like a burden. And if there's somebody that should be, you know, doing this, it should be us, right? Urologists, men's health, you know, we, we should be the ones that help the patients out with these kinds of options. There's a lot of options out there. You definitely want to be complete and sort of explaining all of the different ways that these things affect because there's, a, there's probably more misinformation about testosterone on the internet than almost anything else, right? But a lot of great options and, and yeah, the world is your oyster when it comes to testosterone. <laughs> exactly. So Andrew, thank you for being back table. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. With support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.